For those of you who may be visiting with us today, my name is Ken. I am a retired Army chaplain, and from time to time, uh, Dennis is gracious enough to let me take the pulpit and get the opportunity to share God's word with you, which is an honor to do today. Uh, the ministers have been going here through a series on John's Gospel, so we're going to pick up where we left off in that series several weeks ago. And the events in today's text actually go back to Thursday before Jesus' death and resurrection that we celebrated last week on Easter Sunday. In Jesus' farewell discourse, he gives his disciples some very uh, disturbing news. Our text picks up at that point. So hear the word of God from John 14, verses 1 through 11. This is the ESV version. It's in page 901 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. Hear God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me on that, believe me that I am the Father in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let us pray. The Lord our, our God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear, and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They've been observing the Passover together, a celebration of God's past redemptive work of delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. Then in the middle of it, Jesus shares some shocking news, piling one piece of bad news on top of the other. He tells them that he will be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders who seek his death by someone in a group of his own disciples. And the bold and often brash Peter who claims that he will follow Jesus to the death, will deny him three times before the rooster crows the next morning. And if that wasn't bad enough, after three years of intense 24-7 ministry together, Jesus says he is leaving them and going someplace where they could not follow. How much worse can it get? I mean, if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, not much worse. Although the disciples loved and believed in Jesus, they are profoundly disoriented. They're filled with inner turmoil and confusion. Everything they thought they understood 
about Jesus and who he was and his mission was turned on its head. I mean, wasn't he the Messiah? Shouldn't he be overthrowing the Romans and establishing God's kingdom? And if Peter will deny him and will abandon him, will they do the same? Or will I be the one who betrays him? It was not the way the disciples would have written the end of the story. At this point, we might expect them to provide Jesus comfort and emotional support. After all, we know Jesus' heart was heavy as he faced the suffering of his coming arrest and crucifixion and the agony of spiritual separation from the Father he had never experienced before. Yet it is Jesus who turns to comfort his deeply troubled disciples. Isn't that the way it always is? As we consider how he dealt with them, we'll learn something about the comfort that Jesus provides for their troubled hearts, as well as our own. But before Jesus spells all that out, he gives a bottom line in verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, Jesus isn't giving them a don't worry, be happy kind of power of positive thinking uh, word of encouragement here. He's not think, saying, you know, if you just think positively enough, you know, things will turn out okay, you know, the troubles will somehow disappear. That's not what Jesus is doing. He says all three, all the verbs in, this, in these commands in verse 1, they're all commands. Jesus knows that shortly they will see the full force of the world's power arrayed against them. He knows that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities will all be seeking not only Jesus' death, but they will be seeking them as well. And he tells them in the face of what happens, of what appears to be a catastrophic failure, that they must continue to believe in God. Now that belief isn't a blind leap. It's based on the nature and character of God the Father and on Jesus the Son, who John has been telling us all along is himself God. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the God of all comfort, the one who created and sustains all things. Nothing escapes his providence. And in the darkest hour, we can trust him. Jesus mentions two important reasons for this trust in verses 1 through 11, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. He gives other reasons later in the chapter, but that will have to wait for next week when Dennis preaches. Now, what exactly are his disciples to believe that will calm their hearts? What are they to believe? For now, we're told that trust in Christ's promise of a future dwelling place and Christ's promise of a constant divine presence will comfort troubled hearts. So first, Jesus tells us in verses 2 to 3 that to find comfort for our troubled heart, we must trust in Jesus' promise of a future dwelling place. So in verse 2, Jesus encourages the disciples that his going away is actually a good thing. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? So first of all, Jesus goes ahead to prepare a place for us. The ESV and NIV translations accurately translate the text, in my Father's house are many rooms. It's unfortunate, and I know I'm going to blow some bubbles here in some people's heart. Mind. But it's unfortunate that uh, the King James Version uses the, uses, using the wording of the Latin text, translates the word house as mansion. I, mean, I don't know how many songs I used to sing when I was growing up, you know, about mansions and glory and, 
and it was almost all about the, you know, that, that place I was going to get on the block somewhere on the street in heaven. It has a tendency to focus us on the nature of the dwellings rather on the real purpose of that home going. The image is that the Father's house or heaven has many rooms or dwellings. Some translations even use the word apartments. Uh, if they are apartments, they've got to be some apartments. But as D.A. Carson reminds us in uh, his commentary, the point is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there's, no, there's more than enough room, more than enough space for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him. Yes, there certainly is a real space and time place to be occupied by God's people. But it's not ultimately about the place or the nature of the dwellings. It's about the presence of God. And what does Jesus mean when he says that he's going to prepare a place for us? I mean, it isn't as if heaven is in some sort of state of disarray so that Jesus actually has to go somewhere physically to prepare our rooms for us. In his typical metaphorical fashion, Jesus is telling us that his work, that is about what he is about to accomplish, is itself the preparation. We'll see this again in verse 6. Clink writes in his commentary, the cross, the resurrection, and ascension to the Father is the preparation, the provision of permanent dwelling with God. In other words, Jesus prepares an eternal dwelling for us with God as he goes to the cross and then he conquers death in the resurrection. Jesus' work is the way to living in God's presence, both now and in the future. And not only does Jesus provide the pathway to a permanent dwelling place with God, the promise is that, in verse 3, he will return to take us there. The most obvious meaning of this wording is a reference to his second coming. Now, Jesus' second coming is a future reality, but it has present impact. It's not only something for which we wait expectantly, and we do wait expectantly some days more than others. It's also something for which we live purposefully. There's an old adage that says, and maybe it's an old one that might date me a little bit, but I'm sure you've heard it too. Um, he, is no heaven, he is so heavenly minded that he is no earthly good. Have you ever heard that said about somebody? Now, I know what they mean, but the real truth is that we are no earthly good in terms of God's kingdom in this life unless we are deeply heavenly minded. I used to have a man who discipled me, one of my first disciplers, uh, when I used to get into you know, kind of a troubled heart situation would remind me, and he needed to remind me often, that I just needed to have, take, take a step back and have a divine perspective on things. To look at things from God's perspective, not my own perspective. He was reminding me that we need to have a divine perspective on life that comes through a deep relationship with Christ. It is the same perspective that Paul challenges us to in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Well, how do we apply that? Well, when our hearts are troubled, we have to reframe the way we're think thinking. Rather than focusing on our current experience, we have to focus on the realities of the riches of the gospel we have now in, the, in our future in Christ. And we must let those, the truth of those realities shape our emotions and motivate our actions. 
I mean, it's true with what Jesus is talking to the disciples here. He is not telling them, you know, everything's going to be okay because there seems like a catastrophe on the, on, the, on the horizon here. He is going to leave them. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be tried and crucified and put in the tomb. But we know that he rose again on the third day, so we celebrate every Sunday, but in particular last Sunday. But what he's telling his disciples is to remember in the times of those troubled those troubled times when your hearts are troubled, that there are realities beyond what you're currently experiencing that shape and frame your current experience. The second thing that Jesus tells us in verses 4 through 11 that, that, that help us find comfort for our troubled hearts is that we must trust in Jesus' promise of a constant divine presence. John makes a transition by recording Jesus' statement in verse 4. He says, and you know the way, to where, the way to where I'm going. And Thomas responds in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, the disciples should have known by now that the place that Jesus was going was the cross. I mean, Jesus had told them several times, although they didn't want to uh, come face to face with it and tried to ignore it on occasion. And Peter even tried to tell Jesus it's not going to happen. But Thomas is thinking here, probably like the rest of the disciples, of a literal place someplace. I mean, he needs a road map to get there. He doesn't know where Jesus is going. So some place that they can go, if they get a map to it, they're going to go. But Jesus, Jesus uses Thomas's statement as a way to restate what he has already said about who he is and what his mission in life is. He makes two particular claims. First, in one of the most frequently quoted passages in John, Num uh, number six of the seven statements, the I am statements in John, Jesus says that he is the exclusive path to God in verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now in this verse, Jesus states that he is the way. He is the way to the Father's house. But more than that, he is the way of salvation, a path made open by his death and resurrection. Jesus is the mode, that is, the means by which Christians can share in God's life now and in the future. Jesus is also the truth. Christ is the way of men to the Father, but also the way of the Father to men. In his incarnation, he is the embodiment of the truth. He not only speaks the words of God, he is a divine revelation of reality, the dependable source of truth about everything that exists in this world, but especially everything relating to sin, redemption, and sanctification. Jesus is the reality, the standard for what is real and true in the world. And finally, Jesus says that he is the life. He is the creator of all things, the source of both physical and spiritual life. He literally holds all things in the universe physically together. Without his superintending power, everything would just simply fly apart. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus provides the means to obtain new life in him, that is, eternal life. Now, there's enough in this verse to warrant a separate message just to unpack all that's in there. But one commentator sums it up well. He said, Jesus destroys the wall that divides humanity from God, that is, he is the way. He denies the falsehood that distorts humanity in relation to God. He is the truth. And he defeats the last and greatest enemy of humanity, death. He is the life. It is in light of these realities that Jesus makes 
this exclusive summary. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Not all roads lead to God. Now that's a politically incorrect statement in our post-Christian culture, but Jesus is, make, is making the claim, and he gives us no other options. The world focuses on the exclusivity of that statement rather than its inclusivity. But it really is good news. Stop and think about it. Because the way to the Father is now open. The door is open to everyone who will accept him as Savior and Lord. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus also makes another claim. And he makes a claim to have an exclusive relationship with the Father. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, what is Jesus saying here? I mean, obviously the disciples know him, right? They've spent three years with him, 24-7, pretty intimate relationship with him, so they knew him, but they didn't really understand his full significance until now. I mean, we get that as we read the scriptures, right? We're, we're following along and Jesus says something and the disciples like, are off on someplace else and we like to think that if we were there, we would have seen it differently. We would have understood what Jesus was saying, but they didn't quite get it. They still don't get it. Um, they knew him, but they didn't know everything about him until now. The disciples' future knowledge of the Father is directly related to their experience and relationship to Jesus now. And from now on, that is, from the consummation of Jesus' mission in his death and resurrection, things would be different. They would soon see more clearly that when they see Jesus, they have seen the Father. But they aren't quite there yet, as we see in Philip's response in verse 8, right? Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. It's like, hey, Lord, Jesus, just show us the Father. That's enough. In essence, Philip is asking for a theophany, a visible manifestation of God like that given to Moses in the Old Testament. He gets it that there's a connection between Jesus and the Father, but he misses the inherent unity in the person of the Father and the person of the Son. And he misses the far greater privilege and revelation he had in seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus and seeing the Father and Jesus is a much greater revelation than, than Moses got when he was in the cleft of the rock and saw the glory of God just pass by. You can get a hint of of here a hint of sadness in Jesus' voice in his rebuke in verses 9 and 10. He directs it towards Philip, but he's actually directing it for all the disciples. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, to the extent that the disciples have not yet grasped how the Father has made himself known in Jesus shows they don't really know Jesus well enough. Jesus is the ultimate expression and visible manifestation of God. He is, as Paul tells us, the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus ends our section of, uh, in this, of our text in verse 11 by saying, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
In these words, Jesus shows what he expected of his disciples. He wanted them to understand that he was not just a prophet. He was not just a great teacher, nor even simply the Messiah. He was the Word made flesh, God incarnate. The Father and Son are different persons with different functions, but they are one in essence and nature. And these truths are not just some sort of theological niceties or curiosities that we kind of store up for conversations with people about theology. Um, they are the essential basis for our future hope and present relationship, comfort, and security in Christ. Especially when life circumstances trouble our hearts. Kassenberger writes, the disciples will not be forced to find their own way by resorting to their own resources. Rather, the knowledge of God mediated to them by the revelation provided in and through Christ will serve as their continual source of spiritual life. Jesus may be going away, but he will remain with them in a new and powerful and personal way. We'll see that in next week's text when Jesus says in verses 19 to 20, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And Jesus says, if you can't believe this on my testimony alone, you should remember and learn from the signs that I gave you. And John structures his gospel around those signs. And the purpose of the signs, and Jesus is pretty critical sometimes when people are asking for signs because they're trying, you know, trying to prove who he is. But in this case, he's saying, if you had really understood the signs I performed for you, and the seven I am statements are connected with the, the majority of those signs, then you would understand that what I'm saying is true. You would know who I was and why I came. So Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to those who, believe, who have believed in every generation, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in Christ's promises of a future dwelling place and the constant divine presence will comfort troubled hearts. If you're a non-believer, the reality, power, and comfort of those promises are simply not available to you until you come to know Christ by faith. And ask any one of the elders here what that's all about. They'll be glad to talk to you. On the other hand, as Christians, we're almost ashamed to admit it, but sometimes deep within a seemingly calm exterior are troubled hearts. You just have to live life long enough and it'll happen, right? You'll have times of troubled hearts. So what is it that weighs heavily on your heart this morning? Troubles on the job, things at home not what they should be, sicknesses or illnesses, tragedy in your life. Many of us keep up excellent fronts, but inside our hearts are heavy. But if you are Christ's disciple, these promises of a future home and a current presence are yours. Don't be overcome by your troubles because the God who has called us and in whom we place our trust promises us an eternal dwelling place with him so that no matter what befalls us in this life, we will be with him forever in a place of glory and joy that defies description. Mansions doesn't do it justice. Much more than that. That reality should take captive our every thought, calm our deepest emotions, motivate our every action. We know there is 
a coming time of reconciliation, restoration, peace, and joy, when all the things this life will be made right. But in addition to a future home, God promises his divine presence now in Christ through his spirit. And this loving and sovereign God, who knows everything about us, past, present, and future, yet still loves us unconditionally, hears the troubled prayers of our hearts and empowers us to live in light of these promises. So in the midst of our troubles, God does seem far away sometimes. Does the creator of the universe really have time to care about me? In Jesus, the answer is always yes. When we know Jesus, we know God the Father. We don't just know a great teacher. He is that. And we don't know, just know the Messiah. He is certainly that. We see in Jesus the Father himself. And as we will see next week, he promises to send his spirit into our hearts to empower us to face the troubles of this life, not in our own power, not in our own power of positive thinking, of pulling ourselves up for the, with our bootstraps, or whatever it, you want to, pop, pop psychology piece of advice you want to take. He empowers us to face those troubles because he's sent his spirit into our hearts. And sometimes you may be a little like me when my heart is troubled. You hear the words, you hear the promises, and you think, that's just too simple. Well, it is simple but it's certainly not easy. It requires us to deliberately and consistently to think about and remember the truth of the gospel with our minds. That's what it means, in part, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You've heard that phrase from this pulpit, I think, from various people, uh, from Dennis and from Camper and from Ben in different forms. But it requires us to actually, every day, rehearse the message of the gospel to ourselves and to let that sink in to the point that that reality overshadows any other reality that we're confronted with. It is to let the story of the gospel rewrite our life story in the feeling and experiences of our heart. It's not just all about the mind. It's about the heart. And I use heart here more about the emotions, whereas in the scriptures, the heart is, includes all those things, the intellect, emotion, and the will. But we need to look at our story and God's story and see how God's story has overcome and superseded us, ours and rewritten ours to be a new story that doesn't have to be the old story that we escaped from when we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then as an act of our will, we should act on the gospel. That is to bring our life under its rule and reign all through the empowering work of the Spirit. It isn't easy. That same guy who discipled me uh, told me one time when I was complaining about, you know, things in my life not being quite right again, he reminded me, you know, the Christian life isn't easy. It's, it's, not, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> and so I'm looking at him and he says, it's impossible because you cannot do it on your own. You have to do it the power of God's spirit in your life. And you have to believe that the things he said in his word are true to the point that it reshapes the way you think and the way you act. It's a constant and disciplined process of the gospel every day in our hearts. Jesus' words have given genuine comfort to countless believers with troubled hearts in unimaginable circumstances in every generation. 
So let the promise of a future home in God's presence and the joy of a present relationship with a sovereign and loving Father that is mediated through the loving sacrifice of the Son, Jesus, carry you to those times of trouble in your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this example in your scriptures of how you dealt with your disciples and their troubled heart. And we confess to you there are times when things just aren't going the way we would write the story and our hearts are troubled. But you promise us that we can receive comfort in knowing and claiming and letting the promises that you give us reframe the way we think, especially the promise that we have a heavenly dwelling with you that will be our home someday. But that we don't have to wait till then to experience your presence. Your presence is, con your presence is constantly with us through the work of your spirit in our lives. So Father, we turn our hearts over to you. Those that are untroubled, we give you thanks for the blessings you've given us this point in our lives. And for those that are troubled, Lord, we pray you help us. Help us to see things in the reality of the way you created this world rather than the realities of this life. In Jesus' name we pray.